0: to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Dr. Dennis Bauer, CSIRO's Principal Research Scientist in Transformational Bioinformatics, Adjunct Associate Professor at Macquarie University, and AWS Data Hero. Uh, Dr. Bauer develops machine learning and cloud-based bioinformatics solutions that help fight emerging diseases like COVID-19. She is passionate about improving health by understanding the secrets in our genome using cloud computing, while also building a strong community of practice through open source technology, keynote presentations, and inclusive interdisciplinary collaborations. How are you doing today, Dennis?
1: Hi, excited? Ryan. <laughs> Fantastic to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm, I'm really good.
0: Awesome. Yeah, no, this is uh, this is very exciting. Uh, as we talked about right before we started, um, your background is somewhat different than the, the traditional uh, podcast guests here on Talking Serverless. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be uh, very exciting for both myself to learn more uh, as well as our audience
1: Yeah fair enough I mean similarly for me I've been going into this area quite new because um, because of the necessity of, of the data that we're dealing with so we were sort of thrust into this world of high IT uh, cutting edge technology and we do need to find our way you know feeling our way around it so it's it's experts like your listeners who guide the research that we do
0: yeah, that's fantastic. So let's let's just jump in there. So when, when you're saying that uh, kind of out of necessity, getting into this, what, what kind of spawns uh, that, that happening?
1: Yeah, so we started off with human genome research. And as you probably know, the human genome is quite large. It's 3 billion letters. <laughs> and therefore, in order to analyze all of this, we do need to have a lot of compute crunch. And while... Typical research, I mean, large research institutions, they do have high-performance compute clusters that can be used, and that's what we started off with. Um, processing one genome on, you know, a large cluster and reserving the time, waiting for it, dealing with a failure in there, uh, reanalyzing the data because it failed again and again and again. And sort of from there, we thought, well, there must be a better way. And This is basically what Google has invented with the distributed computing and the MapReduce and Spark cluster approaches where if there's something fails, it seamlessly picks up from there and starts over again. And this led us down down the Spark um, analysis route. But the problem back then was that Spark wasn't really available on your local high-performance compute cluster, which meant we had to rent a cluster in the cloud and that was sort of our first 40 into that area but then we quickly realized that even that isn't enough because the main the main issue there is that if you're renting these massive clusters they don't simply go away you have to pay for them even though the researchers are sleeping and not using them and again we thought well there must be a better way and this was in 2016 when Lambda first came out from AWS, which was basically the answer to all our, <laughs> to all our dreams on saying, we want to have compute that can scale up to these massive workflows. But if we're not using it, it simply goes away without having us to pay anything. And on a researcher budget, you know, on a shoestring researcher budget, <laughs> that is the ideal outcome.
0: Yeah, no, this is amazing. Uh, I, I did some machine learning work in 2017 And we had a similar thing happening where we had these super large servers that we needed to run and they would, they would be on all the time. And we'd be paying for that kind of idle usage and then kind of use serverless and Lambda to kind of create almost dev environments where we could test our computer inference uh, things, uh, but then also have them turn off afterwards. And so it's, it's kind of cool to hear how that, that developed, um, to dive more into, you know, how you even got to where you are. I think I butchered the introduction to be honest. So when it comes to your, your own background, do you mind giving the, the listeners an idea for how you got into tech, how you got into serverless, how you got to uh, CSIRO, and just what what led you down this path?
1: <laughs> yeah. So I'm a researcher, and I guess as a researcher, you do have to have this rebellious streak to it <laughs> that you want to find out more. You want to find out the, the, the meanings behind or challenge the status quo. So that's what I did ever since in school. And I then went on to university to study bioinformatics, which back then was a new discipline. The human genome was just sequenced back then. (laughs) And it sort of opened up this whole new world of really measuring us quantitatively. Because as you probably know, a lot of disease risks are encoded in our genome. So therefore, understanding this really helps in tailoring um, treatments to a person or predicting what kind of risks they might have in the future and adjusting lifestyle changes where you know, simply eating healthier can curb your risk quite substantial rather than having to use drugs um, when it's too late. So with all this excitement and hype around the human genome, there was sort of the, the space that we were jumping into there. I was quite fortunate in um, doing a bioinformatics course with one of the people that actually sequenced the human genome. So he understood what is actually involved in terms of the compute crunch that is needed, you know, down the track of analyzing this. So there was a heavy focus on the IT side of it. In fact, we were doing the IT courses with the people (laughs) in IT, similarly with the medicine and the chemical. Chemical people were sort of sitting in with future clinicians and future chemists and future biologists and listening to in into their individual talks, sort of giving us this humble understanding of the wealth of information that is involved in each of those disciplines. So with with that education, I then came to Australia to to do my research here, and eventually, sort of the biggest research institute here in Australia organization is. CSR, which is sort of the innovation hub or the, the collaboration hub between Australian industry and academia.
0: And yeah,
1: there's the place where I'm at now.
0: Oh, this is amazing. And something that was very fascinating hearing you talk about this is, has there been already any examples where this mapping of the genome and uh, the way that you said that it can already have diseases and markers for that? Um, has cloud computing and other things like that helped in these in these cases? Um do you have any, like, cases where this has been already, like, a home run and, yeah?
1: <laughs> well, a science or, or human, human health is a complicated field. Therefore, you know, saying breakthroughs and home runs, it's never as trivial as that. But we did have, you know, insights into the human genome that weren't possible before. So my own re- research, for example, focuses on can we develop machine learning methods that can take the entirety of the human genome into account when finding disease genes? So typically, when disease genes um, researched is you have a case control cohort you have people that have the disease and you have people that don't have the disease and then you're basically finding what is the difference in their genomes like finding the needle in the haystack out of the three billion letters which one is different and that is the traditional approach of looking at each one of those locations independently and seeing if if there's any enrichment in the disease cohort. But we do know that there's massive redundancy in the genome, where one gene is working together with another one. So if there is a mutation over here, this one might be able to compensate it. So really to understand this whole area, you do need to look at the whole area. And that with the traditional approaches was not possible. But using machine learning, building random forests, uh, we can look at the mutations over here, mutations over there, seeing whether they together fall into a tree, and are discriminative in terms of the phenotype, in terms of the disease, and explaining the disease that comes out at the end. So yeah, we've been researching um, motor neuron disease mainly, which is the disease that Stephen Hawking suffered from. And there, we we did identify um, a couple of new areas that people have not looked at before. That's implied in or that there's an association with a. With a disease and could be novel drug treatments going forward
0: oh that's that's amazing and one thing that I, I started to think about is um, I'd love to hear your perspective is where do you think we're we're headed because when you're talking about the machine learning and I completely agree if you have as you said three billion letters and all this stuff and you have a traditional human reading that uh, that's almost impossible to see how those things develop but if you're using you know leveraging massive compute and you're running all these different simulations and you're seeing all the how it's developing in real time, and then being able to cast those patterns across these, uh, where do you believe that this type of work is going to, to lead us to?
1: Ultimately, the idea is not only to understand the genome and then react to it, but be more proactive about it. So this is another research area that we're into called advanced therapeutics. So this involves gene therapy, genome editing, fart therapy which combats antimicrobial resistance that are arising and all of this really has the base base to it that we do something to either our genome or the genome of the organisms that infect us in order to treat the disease that people have. And for that the key element to safety is really to tailor it to the individual and for that when a patient comes in, there needs to be instantaneous analysis of, of basically all the medical data that are relevant for that person and that, I would argue, really requires surplus because if that is not a burstable workload, I don't know what is. <laughs> so therefore, bringing in these resources from all over the world probably, not only from this patient, but also referencing it from other patients that are similar from all around the world. And then computing over that, I think this is, this is the holy grail where we're trying to get to.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really cool to hear. And it sounds like a perfect use case. Yeah. And I think the burst for that would be quite intense. I uh, can't even imagine. And, and one thing that uh, yeah, I saw here um, was that last year you won the collaboration medal. Uh, for CSIRO, for your work analyzing the COVID genome. Do you want to talk about that and like what, what that meant and what it was for?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, COVID, as we know, is a viral disease. And with all viral pathogens, they do tend to mutate, especially when they first are introduced into a new host organism, the human in, in, in that case. And way back, then where we hardly knew anything about the virus, the key question was, if we develop a vaccine, what are we developing the vaccine for or with? Like what kind of strain of the, mutation, of the virus that mutates and the individual mutation elements are called strains. So which one of those strains do we develop um, it against? So there were samples from all over the world and the question was which one is the one that probably will take off and take on the majority of the of the infections around the world and which ones are weird outlier where the mutation that they accumulate are not going to take off. And for that we developed a new machine learning method to do that. Um, it basically took the each each, it, it split up the, um, the genome of the virus into small windows and then it counted um, those windows and the content of that windows and basically um, developed a, a fingerprint of each viral strain so we could compare them to each other and see where they fall onto sort of an evolutionary landscape where the distance between two strains is the evolutionary distance between them. And with that, we could then map them on that on this map and see where is basically the cluster? Where, where do most of them fall into? Because this is likely where the bulk of the, um, the virus infection will go from in the future. And here we developed a, a web service based on serverless that could do that on an ongoing basis. Because, yeah, we did it back then where we had 200 samples from around the world, but now we have almost 3 million samples available. And therefore, tracking where this virus is going and how it is evolving is absolutely crucial. And as you can imagine, you know, the, the compute resources involved in doing this for 200 samples or 3 million samples is quite different.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and something that's that seems like a very hard problem as well, if there's if it's, such, if it's mutating so many different ways and trying to identify that. I think this is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think that's probably why it's sometimes hard to almost, uh, why we need almost like an annual vaccine to some different diseases because they mutate so often. Do you think that there's, is it possible to get to a point where we can kind of account for all those different variations and, and kind of create a, a vaccine that's like, you know, more widely covering all the different strains? Or is that almost like, you know, not even possible?
1: (laughs) I, I don't think we can predict that for the coronavirus because there's hardly really anything known about it yet. But looking at other viral diseases, flu, for example, we do know that we have to have an annual update to the vaccine because it is mutating so much. The difference, though, between flu and coronavirus is that flu has a much more violent evolution if you want (laughs) it can it basically can shuffle its whole genome around it's called reassortment and coronavirus does not seem to be doing that therefore the mutation rate or the change over time that the coronavirus seems to be able to uh, to achieve is lower that is promising in terms of coming up with something that does not have to be annually updated but because this, this disease is so new, we don't know whether it's just picking up speed in order to come to that violent change in evolution, if you want, um, or whether it will stay stable. What we do know is that you know, no one is safe until everyone is safe, because when the virus has the opportunity of continuous spreading in an unvaccinated population, for example, it will pick up more mutations. It will pick up, you know, it will explore... The evolutionary space uh, more effectively and therefore whatever you know super strain might come out of uh, this melting pot <laughs> of mutational capability will be then spreading all over the world and will be re- reinfecting even the vaccinated people if it has some escape mutations in there and there's some there's some evidence that this is actually happening so for example delta the delta strain we don't we do know that it's more infectious, meaning that it spreads easier between individuals. There is some evidence of mutation that make it more pathogenic. And there is evidence for mutations that make it escape from the, from the vaccine. Because what the vaccine basically is, it's, it is something that recognizes the spike protein of the, of the virus. And if that spike protein changes enough so that our body can't recognize it anymore, then all the you know all the effort we put into vaccinating the population is for nothing because you know our body does not does not recognize the the virus anymore and treats it as if it was a new infection.
0: Yeah, wow, that's a very very difficult problem. It sounds like. Uh, and so yeah, when this is when when the pandemic started, um, and you're in the position that you were, how did your how did your life change with, with all this stuff happening, and with your unique background?
1: I think we quite early on recognised the the implication of all of this, and being a research organisation, we were able to focus our effort then onto this massive global problem. So basically, in um, two thousand twenty, we almost dropped everything and focused exclusively on um, on COVID and finding the right vaccine strategy for it, or contributing to that which on one hand was was scary because it was a new area. It was nothing that we've done before. There needed to be a lot of bespoke analysis um, that was required for that. And it was like our old our old research had to be put on hold. But on the other hand, it was very rewarding because suddenly you were working on something that universally everyone agrees that this is a priority area and needs to be, Uh, needs to have a solution. So I think this was the first time where sort of the researchers were able um, to communicate with anyone on the street. And it was a topic that everyone found interesting. (laughs) So I think that that sort of brought the importance of science and the importance of research to mainstream. And that was quite an interesting and and, and rewarding, I guess, uh, experience.
0: Yeah, that was something else I was going to ask about. Is that doing the type of work that you're doing, and, and now mixing in the cloud computing's uh, aspects and serverless? How for those listening that have that type of background, that maybe have never considered uh, applying that type of knowledge to the field that you work in? What what would you kind of say to those those people that maybe have never even thought that I could be doing serverless development in this this similar field?
1: Yeah. So let's keeping the serverless um, as sort of second secondary question, like. I talk a lot to IT people that come to me after the talks and saying, Wow, the area that you work in it's so um, it's so immediate, it's so rewarding. You you do see you know the, the the outcome of what you're doing so immediately rather than working on a commercial product or um, delivering something to your client. And I I would argue that whatever the IT community has developed is basically the foundation that lets us you know, stand on the shoulders of these giants to come up with the research that we're doing. So basically, I would argue that everyone in IT has contributed one way or another to doing medical research and pushing this field forward, be that, you know, through GitHub repositories, be that to pushing open open data, pushing, uh, you know, the open software strategies. So all of this really has contributed one small step uh, to the overall outcome. And with that, I would argue that anyone who wants to go into the field of medical science and medical research from the IT perspective could do that tomorrow. <laughs> All it needs to take is this interest in life science, medical research, and the willingness to learn this area and bring the expertise from IT to that. So, this is a general um, IT statement. In terms of serverless, I think this is even more pronounced there because serverless is so new that basically everyone is new to that field. And we're all learning from scratch. We're all feeling our ways around it and we're all pushing this paradigm forward together. So, therefore, as much uh, having as many experts from different disciplines, I think is really helpful because not only can we bring our background to this, and, and push the area, but it's also that we have all different ideas and different visions and different use cases for serverless and I think this will create a, a, a richer environment going forward
0: yeah very well said and uh, yeah something else that this whole thing kind of plays into is in the type of work that you're doing and, and recognizing the need of serverless and kind of acting on that is that is that widespread in, in this in this field or is it more like uh, you know it's very unique to specifically, I believe it's CS, yeah, CSIRO.
1: Yeah, mm. <laughs> difficult question. I think I think this is compounded by cloud in general. There is still somewhat a hesitancy of the medical community to go into the cloud, and this is around you know, concerns around data privacy, having to give up the ownership of data, and I think there's only just now this understanding that keeping the data safe is easier in the cloud because you do have the global community developing standards there rather than having having to rely on your local team to know everything and keep the data safe there. So I think with this paradigm shift of now having accepted that the cloud is likely to go, um, you know, to be the way forward, the next question is around vendor login. Usually there is this problem with cloud going to the cloud of saying you're logged into that vendor and therefore you can't really commit to that. But with serverless, the idea is that yes, your data might be located on one, but your compute can be on another. And there's this interface between the two um, clouds potentially that make that seamless. And again, serverless really allows for that because it has this idea of modularity built in where each element can be located in a different service on a different server <laughs> and uh, a different provider and this brought together by this notion of you know interfaces apis and so on
0: and so when it comes to potentially increasing the adoption of that do you feel like that's just a natural process which is happening already or uh, are there other things that can happen to kind of accelerate um, that move maybe even this this podcast potentially you talking about this is already Uh, helping in that. But are there other ways that kind of just almost informing the community that, you know, it is you are able to have data privacy and keep your data safe um, and you're able to kind of move around vendor lock in a little bit uh, as well?
1: Yes. Obviously, if you build together solutions, examples, then people will realize that this is not just theory. And to be fair, at this stage, it is just theory. We do need to push, I think, the providers as well to embrace, to fully embrace the idea that you have to grow the pie together. And for that, you do need to have some sort of leakage between the different systems and to not only cater for that but to really build that into their strategy going forward because otherwise you will not grow the pie neither for yourself nor for everybody else, because people will stay on their local system and will just build their local systems better, especially now with the argument um, around compute sovereignty. Like with COVID, it it has taught us that we do need to work together globally, but it also has shown that the global connections can break down quite easily. And therefore, you do need to have some sort of self-sufficiency. And that really fuels the argument for saying, well, we need to have local compute resources. We do need to have uh, local high-performance compute facilities where governments put in in the money in order to ensure that. And this goes basically against the argument of of the cloud and multi-vendor and sort of having a globally connected world. So I think there's this balance between... What, what the world is currently showing us and what the what examples are out there. And together, I think we need to build more examples out there that show that you can have self-sovereignty, but also the connectivity between uh, the rest of the world because those data sets that are located around the world are absolutely crucial to informing the analysis that you do locally.
0: Yeah, that's, that's super well said. And this is often something that, uh, comes up around the you know multi cloud cloud lock in vendor lock in, and it definitely seems like the argument uh, for vendor lock in being less of a concern on like the purely the web application development or mobile application development is you're building a product and so your focus is on the product and uh, making that a scalable solution on multiple different clouds uh, is is almost delays getting that customer feedback and then iterating on the product um, to, due to the global scale of some of the offerings from like AWS, GCP, et cetera. Uh, but when you start talking about this specifically, I can definitely see how it's a much more broad uh, conversation. Um, and if there are arguments on that side for the need for that, then yeah, I completely agree The cloud providers need to hear that, need to continue to make that part of their strategy because we definitely don't want people to say, yeah, it's about 85% what I need and it'll be awesome, but it's missing this one core element um, strictly because of, as you mentioned, uh, you know, they're not trying to grow everybody's pie. They're trying to kind of lock things down underneath their specific umbrella. And that's where we get into situations, which I'm sure you've ran into where GCP might have one service. that's way better than Amazon's service, but then the ability to use these two things seamlessly between the two, uh, becomes really difficult and a very complex problem. Um, and I'm sure you run into those conversations of why are we using this at all? Um, and so, yeah, yeah, completely, completely makes sense. Um, uh, and, and and one thing that I, I have uh, written down here as well, which I want to make sure that we talk about is, you know, you're a uh, AWS data hero, um, which is amazing. Uh, and you were also uh, Australia's first AWS data hero. Um, what, what did that kind of look like? And and what, what did that mean to you to kind of be kind of held up by the community a little bit?
1: Yeah, it's, as I said, I, I came from the outside. <laughs> And therefore, this is sort of the the validation that what we're doing is not completely crazy. <laughs> it is actually something that that is on world on a world level. And um, I think that that confirmation to hear that from the from your own community is really rewarding and, and sort of spurns you on to do better and deliver more in the future. So that, that was great. For me being in this unique position because I'm actually the only one out of the AWS heroes globally that is working in the in academia outside of the IT space. And therefore for me, I sort of feel that I'm I'm sort of the ambassador for for that space, for you know to bring that the problems of that space to the IT community and sort of implore everyone that you know, there, there's, there's so many problems in, um, in that space and so many opportunities to solve medical research and bring that forward that I think everyone who has a bit of spare time and interest could really m- make a contribution there. And that's what I'm trying to bridge this gap between um, medical science academia and the IT community. Because as I said before, all the, all the fantastic work that the IT community is doing needs to flow into the medical science space. And it currently is not really because the medical researchers, they're not IT experts typically. And therefore, there is this idea that sometimes you can hack things together and solutions that are good enough are good enough. Rather than really striving for the latest, newest, embracing the la- the you know, good software practices, high standards around that, and so therefore, there's this whole opportunity of bringing that good practice, that solid uh, track record of how to develop software more rapidly, more stable, how to bring that into um, into the medical community. So, for example, there's um, an FDA paper around. Machine learning as medical devices, where the question is how do we train machine learning methods to be robust, or on the flip side, how do we detect whether there is a um, a prediction that is for an individual not optimally, and how do we do we identify that before it ends up in a catastrophic outcome, for example, death, and all of this questions like they do exist in the IT space already probably not quite as you know on those stakes I don't know maybe maybe they do in the uh, you know air travel community or so <laughs> but I feel that there's a lot of knowledge over there that can be brought into the medical space
0: yeah and this is this is really interesting because um, as you we were talking I was thinking you know where would we start with that right so would that be like uh, tools or is is it uh is it um i think i put here like practices that are then you know funneling down to existing people in the space or is it more even during the you know you said academia um is it during these kind of uh, degree programs where people are learning about this stuff uh in their college journey um where is it being covered enough kind of the more modern practices that you're implementing here um coming from the background that you have going through school and and uh that going to that that that, 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 um, that background sorry um, where, where, where where would we attack this problem to kind of bring in these new modern IT practices uh, for uh, maybe new professionals or existing professionals in a space
1: yeah I think it needs to come in quite early <laughs> at least the notion of it so looking at my own education like we were trained in software practices and it was sort of drilled into that that this is the foundation of anything you know, uh, of all the uh, you know the the cornerstone of how robust your research is going forward, and I think that understanding and that realization needs to come in quite early because if you don't have that, and if you realize that in practice you can get away with quite a lot, <laughs> then it's already too late. Sort of, it's it's um hard to reform to reform people rather than um, teaching them good practices from the start. In saying that, though. When we look at the cloud, like the cloud wasn't around way, way back when i when I did my education, and similarly it, it only just flows into the i t education today, right there are cloud causes, and it's sort of this special thing that is happening at universities. Um, and, and yet, people have adopted the cloud quite ferociously. So I think I think it's never really too late to um, adopt good software practices and develop good software practices. I think with an even more connected world and this notion of modularity in the core of your architecture, servers, right? There is this this paradigm shift of how do we treat interoperability? How do we treat version control? How do we treat continuous um, you know, deployment? Like all of these are new concepts that I don't think have quite settled down yet. There's still development in that space. And I would probably argue that is ongoing development, you know, forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that, that makes a ton of sense is that you would, now we're actually starting to see that. So. Definitely keep doing more of that, add more uh into the curriculum to include cloud modern development practices. Um it's really cool to hear that you you you're already drilled in with the uh, software practices uh going through the field that you're doing. Um and, and so when it comes to that, what what type of what does your day-to-day look like in terms of you mentioned version control, uh CI C D, these different areas. Is that if you had to give like a percentage about how much your day is spent in different areas, um, how would you define those kind of buckets?
1: Right. Hmm. In terms of good software practices, I think we're still very much on the on the research side. Like we're not quite code cowboys. <laughs> I think we evolved from there, but I don't think we fully embrace the um, how you know the beautiful software development pipeline that we could be doing. Like f- for example, in my in my vision, mm-hmm. it will be that. Software development is done in the cloud, and therefore you can bring in the latest, newest code analysis tools that automatically could go over your code, annotate, you know, where you could improve the syntax, where you could improve the the performance, where you know your for loop has some elements in there that do not need to be in there, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, right. And similarly around the security protocols, I right, it it could automatically flag uh, that you could be encrypting the data here and decrypting it over there in order to boost up your overall penetrance if you if you want of your um of your if your solution so with all of that it it could be in the cloud and it could be this seamless thing that we then press a button and it gets deployed to um, either one of those cloud providers and all of that is in theory possible, but we're not really um doing it because there is no one thing like one software solution that offers all of that it would be it would require a lot of work on our side in order to make to make this happening and then there's the question well with research being so flexible how much can you actually afford to put into these good solid pipeline practices before you going overboard in logging yourself down in terms of the innovation and the speed of update and so on. That is sort of the balance specific to the research space that you need to, um, that you need to find solutions for.
0: No, that's, that's, that's a, that's a really uh, interesting answer. So I think one thing there too, is when it comes to abstractions and, and you know, the, we, when we talk about serverless, the, and if you open the Lambda console or anything like that, the amount of options, the complexity. And it's, and as you said, it's maturing. And so there's things that are old that no longer are the the best practice and it's constantly evolving. And when somebody comes into the space, they can sometimes be overwhelmed by the number of things going on. Um, Do you feel like there's a necessary abstraction that needs to happen over just going into something like AWS or GCP alone and trying to interact with these services? Um, Would the medical science field have their own abstracted version of this uh, of the cloud that they can then run you know their specific tests and all these things on without you know with doing some automation in the background of course and just make that that easier or do you feel that uh, at some point everybody's going to need to develop uh, some of these cloud computing uh, practices themselves
1: that is a very good question yes so abstraction obviously help with adoption the easier it is the more people adopt it but it also has the problem of you can't really build what you need to build. I think this is sort of the huge difference between AWS and all the other cloud providers in that AWS is this open sandbox where you can really, if you wanted to, drill into the to the lowest level and build something from scratch there that other cloud providers might not allow you to do. So this is, again, good and bad, and for us, it really allows us to build something truly novel—an uh, architecture that is not based on a template. And for our application cases, that's that—that that is, you know, re- that is absolutely required. But it also means that we do need to think about how do we do the architecture, where do, does it fall down, where are the the vulnerabilities and so on, and it, probably we miss a lot of things that that could be optimized, that could be made better that could be more robust and therefore the abstraction would help with that so yeah it's sort of this spectrum it's good to have both i i would argue that you're starting to build um, prototypes on the absolute lowest level but as you mature and bring it into production levels especially in 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 health where it's critical that it gets it right the first time um, the abstraction levels help with coming up with robust robust solutions that do not have any, um, security flaws and so on.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I, I completely agree. It's, it's a hard line to navigate because, uh, we've often ran into things and I've ran into this in my career as, as well, where we, we use some tool and then it's a black box and then you need to do something outside of it and you run into these issues and then you now have to start over from scratch. And that's, that can always be very, uh, discouraging to say the least, um, and so, yeah, so the idea that, you know, AWS is a little bit more low level, um, allows you to kind of create what you need to create and go as far as you need to go um, versus more of a uh, fully managed black box uh, services at some level. Um, yeah, that's that's a really, a really great way to say that. Um, and so, yeah, coming to a close almost, I wanted to get, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the role that open source that you mentioned it earlier as well, uh, about the role that open source has played. Uh, for you personally, and also what you believe open source plays for the entire uh, the entire community.
1: I'm a big believer that open source is sort of you know the thing that everybody should be doing. <laughs> but then again, you know I'm I'm an idealistic researcher. <laughs> so for us, what we do is all of our tools are open source at it, at their core because this is where we get the credibility from. This where we um, get to publish, get the peer reviewed. Um, you know, evaluation of what we're doing is correct and is the highest standard. So I think that is sort of absolutely crucial to our software development practices going forward. But then we also, because we do need to get money in in order to fund all that development going forward. And for that, I I think we adopted this um, software 2.0, open source 2.0, Paradigm where the core is open source, but then the surrounding services are where the commercial value is. So for us specifically, the deployment of this open source is where we're trying to uh, get our revenue, um, our revenue in that funds the research that we do. So we do developed um, a cloud solution that has gone onto the AWS marketplace. In fact, it was the first health product from a public sector organization to go on a digital marketplace. And this, I think, allows us to keep on developing the open source core, publish that so that everybody knows what is inside and how it's working and and being able to benchmark it to other tools, but then have the deployment of how to stand up that solution in someone else's cloud account how to make it talk to the data, how to have the security standards around that, have this as sort of the, the paid service around it. <clears throat> and so for us, this has two, two benefits. One is that it enables reproducible research. So that is basically the, the foundation of medical research, that you do something, you find something, and then someone else that is unrelated to you replicates that finding on a different dataset that is sort of the gold standard. And typically that is quite difficult because it's so hard to replicate exactly the same environment uh, with exactly the same workflow somewhere else. Like there's always something different. The hardware is different, the libraries are different, the way you run it, which one you run first, etc. All of this can be different. Um, and I think with the marketplace, that is sort of the first time where we say, this is the solution. Replicate it over here, press this button <laughs> and it either works, confirming that the research is correct or it doesn't work, which means there's, there's something wrong with the research rather than the architecture um, that you have set up over there. So reproducible research is a big thing in the community and Marketplace really allows for that. But it also allows us the traditional meaning of the Marketplace, namely to get in revenue through paid services of how to deploy it. Um, easier and simpler so i would hope that in the serverless community there is something similar set up soon um, i mean i do know that there is the the app library for example um, aws which allows individual uh, lambda functions to be registered with basically a marketplace but you cannot commercialize that like you cannot put uh, attach revenue to it and it is just the lambda function rather than i think the whole architecture around it so there is, a, from my perspective, there is this urgent need for a marketplace of serverless architectures where each one of those um, services that they're using, they're metered and built so that the client, again, you know, has the benefit of serverless that they only pay for what they use rather than a standard set boxed fee.
0: <laughs> no, that's very inspiring, actually. And I hope that uh, people listening take that to heart because it definitely it definitely seems like something that we need to get uh, get rolling. And um, if we could, then I think that opens the door to tons of amazing possibilities where people will be building things out and then being able to basically market them to do exactly what uh, you're describing there um, and ultimately hitting, hitting revenue as well. Um, and so it was also very cool to hear about the open source side of things where you'll have that code kind of publicly uh, there. Um, people can actually see that um and then that's something also that's happening in the blockchain like um in the decentralized finance space as well uh very heavy open source usage and it's almost um it's a different model that's i think that's probably why it's so exciting is that it's almost a different model than we've seen in the past where things are usually like kept underneath private and um and and now you have this you have decentralized finance you have uh, other communities that are now building out entire products publicly um and then it's not stopping them from being able to achieve their, their end goal, but they're able to actually do things like bounties, like code bounties, where people can add code and then actually get paid for contributing code without having to have a normal contractor employment, you know, NDA, all these things. Um, and so I think that, that whole space is very very interesting to watch. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you giving insight, uh, insight on that. Uh, as we're coming to a close, something I always like to do with guests that come on, uh, is ask if you have anything that you want to promote, uh, either personally or or with your work, um, so that people can kind of uh, learn more about you or find other things that you'll be uh, presenting at or talking talking about or your own blog. Or so, do you have anything that you want to kind of promote?
1: Yeah, sure. So our research, <laughs> as you were saying so nicely, like the age where you develop something as a as a core team. Uh, that doesn't change and get paid for it uh, through a contract i think that age is over um it is the contribution of uh, the you know the community like democratisation of the code base that is that is where we're going to and it's the same thing with research so therefore, i would uh, strongly encourage everyone who finds this interesting and wants to dip their toes into this and see if there's anything that they can do to go to our webpage we do have tons of developments there. So, from machine learning of developing um, or finding disease genes to the search engine of the genome where we can edit, or help edit the genome in a safe way to then advance therapeutics, uh, combating antimicrobial resistance, which is I know, a problem that is way larger <laughs> than COVID ever will be. So, all of these areas desperately need the input from IT experts. And therefore, if you have time spare and have an expertise to contribute, have a look at those, um, at those code bases and see if there's anything in the GitHub repository that you can you can pick up, um, contribute to it, uh, submit and then have contributed, you know, to research to saving lives in the future. Uh, Isn't that awesome?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's, that's, that is absolutely awesome. So, um, fantastic. And, and, and thanks again for being a guest on the Talking Serverless uh, podcast. It was, it was great to have you on, Denise.
1: My pleasure. It was great talking to you.
0: Uh, To those listening, uh, this has been the Talking Serverless podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to learn more, definitely check out Talkingserverless.io. And of course, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Uh, And join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest.